Christopher Morley, on going to bed. One of the characters in The Moon and Sixpence remarked that he had faithfully lived up to the old precept about doing every day two things you heartily dislike. For, said he, every day he had got up, and he had gone to bed. It is a sad thing that as soon as the hands of the clock have turned ten, the shadow of going to bed begins to creep over the evening. We have never heard bedtime spoken of with any enthusiasm. One after another we have seen a gathering disperse, each person saying, with an air of solemn resignation, Well, I guess I'll go to bed. But there was no hilarity about it. It is really rather touching how they cling to the departing skirts of the day that is vanishing under the spinning shadow of night. This is odd, we repeat, for sleep is highly popular among human beings. The reluctance to go to one's couch is not at all a reluctance to slumber, for almost all of us will doze happily in an armchair on a sofa, or even festooned on the floor with a couple of cushions. But the actual and formal yielding to sheets and blankets is to be postponed to the last possible moment. The devil of drowsiness is at his most potent, we find, about 10.30 p.m. At this period, the human carcass seems to consider that it has finished its cycle, which began with so much courage nearly 16 hours before. It begins to slack, and the mind halts on a dead center every now and then, refusing to complete the revolution. Now, there are those who hold that this is certainly the seemly and appointed time to go to bed, and they do so as a matter of routine. These are commonly the happier creatures, for they take the tide of sleep at the flood and are borne calmly and with gracious gentleness out to great waters of nothingness. They push off from the wharf on a tranquil current, and nothing more is to be seen or heard from these voyagers until they reappear at the breakfast table, digging lustily into their grapefruit. These people are happy, aye, in a brutish and sedentary fashion, but they miss the admirable adventures of those more embittered wrestlers who will not give in without a struggle. These latter suffer severe pangs between 10.30 and about 11.15, while they grapple with their fading faculties and seek to re-establish the will on its tottering throne. This requires courage stout, valor unbending. Once you yield, be it ever so little, to the tempter, you are lost. And here our poor barren clay plays us false, undermining the intellect with many a trick and wile. I will sit down for a season in that comfortable chair, the creature says to himself, and read this sprightly novel. That will ease my mind, and put me in humor for a continuance of lively thinking. At the end of that man is a steady nasal buzz from the bottom of the chair where he has collapsed, an unsightly object, and a disgrace to humanity. This also means a big bill from the electric light company at the end of the month. In many such ways will his corpus bewray him, leading him by plausible self-deceptions into a pitfall of sleep, whence he is aroused about 3 a.m., when the planet turns over on the other side. Only by stiff perseverance and rigid avoidance of easy chairs may the critical hour between 10.30 and 11.30 be safely passed. Tobacco, a self-brewed pot of tea, and a browsing along bookshelves, remain standing and do not sit down with your book, are helps in this time of struggle. Even so, there are some happily drowsy souls who can never cross these shallows alone without grounding on the lotus reefs. Our friend J.D.K., a magnificent creature, was, when we lived with him, so potently hypnophile that even erect and determined at his bookcase and urgently bent upon Brand's iconoclast or some other literary irritant, sleep would seep through his pores, and he would fall with a crash, lying there in unconscious bliss until someone came in and prodded him up, reeling and ashamed. But as we started to say, those who survive this drastic weeding out which night imposes upon her wooers 
so as to call and choose only the truly meritorious lovers, experience supreme delights, which are unknown to their snoring fellows. When the struggle with somnolence has been fought out and won, when the world is all covering darkness and close-pressing silence, when the tobacco suddenly takes on fresh vigor and fragrance and the books lie strewn on about the table, then it seems as though all the rubbish and floating matter of the day's thoughts have poured away, and only the bright, clear, and swift current of the mind itself remains, flowing happily and without impediment. This perfection of existence is not to be reached very often, but when properly approached, it may be won. It is a different mind that one uncovers then, a spirit which is lucid and hopeful, to which, for a few serene hours, time exists not. The friable resolutions of the day are brought out again and recemented and chiseled anew. Surprising schemes are started and carried through to happy conclusion. Lifetime of amazement are lived in a few passing ticks. There is one who at such moments resolves, with complete sincerity, to start at one end of the top shelf and read again all the books in his library, intending this time really to extract their true marrow. He takes a clean sheet of paper and sets down memoranda of all the people he intends to write to and all the plumbers and whatnot that he will call up the next day. And the next time this happy seizure attacks him, he will go through the same gestures again, without surprise and without the slightest mortification. And then, having lived a generation of good works since midnight struck, he summons all his resolution and goes to bed. <laughs>